Hello everyone, this is Noah. And I'm Simon. And welcome to the Resolve Podcast. We're your resource for all things mental health, academic success, and personal growth. Devoted to helping students thrive and build the resilience to succeed in school and in life. We are live for another episode of the Resolve podcast. I'm with my friend, Marley Liss. Marley, thank you so much for coming on. Hi, thank you so much for having me. How do you want to introduce yourself? Is there anything that you want to say um, about yourself that would, you know, bring this to the, bring this conversation to a start? Yeah, I can, I can share a little bit about myself, like a little informal bio. Um, so yeah, my name is Marley. I am uh, queer, femme, Jewish. Uh, I'm a survivor of sexual trauma, which informs a lot of my work. Uh, I do a lot of work around like somatic sex education, which looks also at, you know, making sure that we understand things, not just in our heads, but like in our bodies so that we can actually integrate them into the way we move through the world and interact with people and all of those good things. Um, what else do I do? I'm a speaker on restorative justice for sexual violence. So I often speak on campuses and at related conferences, and that's been really amazing. And I also dedicate a lot of time to sharing, um, like sexual wellness related content and trauma informed approaches to reclaiming pleasure on the internet and in the world. So you have a, a big online presence, but you've also done a lot of work in person. You go across schools and you speak about yes. very important topics. What, what are some of the big topics that you speak about? Yeah, the biggest one definitely would be restorative justice for sexual violence. And I know that you had my, my amazing mom on the podcast speaking about um, our shared experience of sitting in a circle with my assailant um, after a sexual assault. And that was an incredibly life-changing experience. And it was just healing beyond what I knew was possible. So People should definitely listen to that episode if they want to know more about that and maybe we'll get more into it. But it's really looking at um, like making sure that we, when we go through something horrible as survivors, people turn to us and actually ask us what we want and need in order to be okay, um, rather than kind of turning away from us and neglecting us in order to focus so much on like punishing the person who caused harm. So that's a really big part of it. Um, and mainly I go to campuses and I share that story and people always have a lot of questions around that story and we really get into different ways that we can break cycles of harm in our world and ignite cycles of healing on a more long-term level, especially around gender-based violence. And then the other things I focus on are inclusive sex education. So I bring in that queer lens and a trauma-informed lens to make sure that people aren't just avoiding um, like risks and like so often when we talk about sex education it's very risk-based and it's like precaution don't do this don't do this but it's more of a pleasure positive approach of like okay what can we do what feels really great what would be amazing so kind of imagining um our world and our cultures in a more pleasure focused way rather than like a bunch of stop signs and red lights so the conversation around sexuality on campus in particular, you go, you, you go around and talk about that. Restorative justice is, is one piece of that, but it's also 
dealing with everything else that comes up from sexuality to how to relate to sexuality. I'm guessing things around consent, all sorts mm -hmm. of stuff that's really young people have a hard time grappling with or integrating into their life. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the amazing thing about sex education is it doesn't just relate to sex. It's like if we're learning about consent, if we're learning about boundaries, if we're learning about feeling safe within our bodies and connections, like that stuff applies everywhere, right? That applies in friendships and in work environments and like everywhere in the world. So it's really to me about like creating cultures of consent. And then that, of course, plays a really big role in our sex life and our sexual interactions, but it's like really informing our, our whole world. It has, it has a ripple effect um, in even non-sexual areas, just in general about personal space and, and reclaiming that and, 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 and knowing that every person's level of personal space on a very simple level, for example, two people have different senses of what's too close in person. Some people get really close when they start to talk to somebody. Other people find mm -hmm. that really uncomfortable. Um, and how to navigate conversations about boundaries is really important, especially starting in high school or even younger. I don't mm -hmm. know how young of people that you do speak to. Yeah. So, I mean, it's so wild if we think about sex education. There's just such a lack of it. And it's often so distorted or just like yeah it's often just not there especially in the states there's such a push for um like abstinence culture and kind of this thing of like uh just don't do it right like deal with it knows. only after the fact it's like deal with things after the fact right it's like all responsive so we're just mm -hmm. not given the information and then so many of us in search of the information turn to the internet or the media which is also often so distorted. And we see a lot of like rape culture being perpetuated there. We see a lot of like women being denigrated and objectified. And we see a lot of toxic masculinity. And so often we see interactions that um, like often breach consent or don't include consent or those conversations at all. So it's just not a good resource for us to have sex education and then there are so many amazing sex educators in the world and on the internet and everything, but we also see a lot of censorship of that information. So it's just really hard for us to access sex ed. And meanwhile, it's something that every single person, no matter their sexual orientation, like needs in order to not just be okay, but to like thrive and feel great in life. So it's such, it's such important information to be sharing and speaking on. And moving a little bit, so clearly there is a big part of you is getting out there and speaking, uh, pre presenting on these topics. And I'm not sure what's ha actually happening on a, on systemic levels and educations and curriculums, but that's maybe uh, a different discussion. So the restorative justice, I want to ask a little bit about it because maybe there's people that listen to the first one and there might be a continuation there that we want to ask about. We got your mom's side of the story. For your mom, it was very, very transformative for her to be able to do that. How did you decide that you wanted to do that? And how would you describe, I know you've, you have sort of, a, you've done presentations on this. You've spoken so much about it, but yeah. immediately what comes to mind and heart for you when you reflect on it on a regular basis about how it's impacted you and how it continues to impact you today? Hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, how I decided to do it is, is a big question 
Um, and one of the reasons I continue sharing about this so much is because no one told me about it. Like I did not know restorative justice existed at all. And I actually did report like through the criminal justice system. And I went to a preliminary trial and that process was three years long. And it was like horrible. It was so dehumanizing. It was really triggering. It was just like a really, really big obstacle to my own healing and mental wellness after something so brutal. So hated that. And then I got subpoenaed for the criminal trial after. So that was three years later. And at that point, I was like, you know what? Like, I think I might drop the charges. This is just, it's just too hard and it's not worth it to me. That must and happen a lot to people, by the way. Like the happens. money and the oh, mental, God. emotional investment must be like, this is ridiculous. I'm not even going to get anything from this. I'm just going to be barren at the end of it. Yeah. And there's even if, so... I, even if I win. Mm -hmm, exactly. And there's so much that the defense lawyer on the like other side does in order to get the survivor to that point of wanting to drop the charges so it's this really brutal process like something they'll do is they'll change the date of your court date last minute and they'll keep doing that and pushing it back and pushing it back and pushing it back so that your anxiousness and like stress around the trial just grows and grows and grows and eventually you're like screw this so that really does happen all the time and it's so horrible so yeah exactly to and that's me, all it was within like, the bounds of the law too yeah. So to me, it was like, like you said, even if we go to a criminal trial and I quote, quote, win and he's incarcerated, like, do I, first of all, is my need for like closure and healing supported by that? And second of all, like, do I actually believe that will do anything in the long run in terms of like him not doing this again and even gender based violence happening less in our world? So to me, I was like, this feels like it's just kind of feeding into all the pain and dehumanization and like continued harm. So it just felt bad. And I was about to drop the charges. And I had a friend say to me like, hey, Marley, like if this was your dream world, you know, what would you actually want? What would justice actually feel like to you? And no one had ever asked me that. And I never really thought about it much, but hearing her say that gave me the space to like reflect on what my needs actually were. And I was like, you know, if it, if it was my world, we wouldn't handle this in a courtroom. We'd actually deal with it like human beings. I would get to ask the questions I've been wanting to ask for years. Like he would actually go through some process of transformation so that he hopefully doesn't do this again. And like, actually unpacks whatever trauma and conditioning led him to commit such an act of violence and and I would be able to emote as well because something in court is like you have to kind of put on the the um mask of like the the perfect victim you're not too emotional but you're not too flat like all this stuff in order to be believed so I was like I just want an authentic I just want a real process like something where we're being real and authentic so her response was, so make it happen. And that was like the first time I'd ever been like, oh, maybe I should actually validate what I want enough to look into it. So that's when I started researching. And finally, I came across restorative justice. And I actually just like put in my Instagram story. Does anyone know anything about restorative justice? And that's how I got connected with my lawyer. 
we then like fought for this, this outcome. And it was a big ongoing process with a lot of pushback. And my case is still getting a lot of pushback in the, in the crown attorney's office and whatnot. It's a very controversial case. Um, Why is it controversial? Um, I think that this is one of the most controversial topics that there are because sexual violence, like we were saying about sex education, like anything sex related is so taboo, so uncomfortable for people to talk about. Sexual violence is like that times 1000. Like people are so uncomfortable with it. You can kind of feel the air in the room change when I just like tell people what I do for a living. They're like, <laughs> like there's this stiffness and tension around it. And then restorative justice is just so, it really contrasts a lot of what we've been taught. So just to define restorative justice in a really simple way for people, it's basically prioritizing repair instead of punishment, right? So instead of saying like, oh, you hurt this person, what do we do with you? You like bad person, whatever. It's like, oh, someone was hurt. Hey, person who was hurt, like, what do you actually need in order to be okay? What should the person who caused the harm be doing right now so that we know they won't do this again, right? So to me, that just makes a lot of sense. But when we look at that punitive approach that's focused on punishment, we see it everywhere in our culture. We see it on social media and cancel culture. We see it in schools where detentions are used. We see it with this kind of narrative that we hear a lot right now where it's like, if someone has a red flag, like run in the other direction, like cut them out of your life, screw them, like this kind of quickness to give up on each other. So because we've normalized that punitive approach in all areas of our life, for a lot of us, it feels absolutely insane to consider using that for something as extreme as sexual violence. So it's just such a deep topic that really makes people reflect on their beliefs, including this belief that a lot of us hold where there's this kind of binary of like, good person, bad person. And it's like, it's this oversimplified thing where we fail to kind of see people as whole human beings. And we kind of, we kind of give up on transformation if we're holding that, that paradigm. So it's just such a challenging topic for people, but it's also a, a fun one because I think it does, it can shift so much in our life and in our communities. The topic of restorative justice to me leads a lot to a discussion about forgiveness and what that means. Mm-hmm. You're, you're picking up on trends in our world, which is perhaps a desire to have clarity, to have certainty, to know things and to have clear markers. A stop sign says stop. A green light says go. Mm-hmm. To simplify the world in that way is easier. So if you are on team right, you see the world that there's there's a whole, there's like a pre, it's like a script almost. You know how to react to every event. Mm-hmm. If you're on team left, you know how to react to events. There's not a lot of com- conversation and conversation is a lost art in many respects. Mm-hmm. I, I have concerns about the lack of restorative justice, the fact that it's the landmark case, that it's one case, because mm-hmm. not because there's inherently something, for example, in, in, in Judaism, around the laws of forgiveness, a law you know, that we learn through Yom Kippur, through the Day of Atonement, there is a clear need to have regret 
for what people have done, to have mm -hmm. resolution to not repeat it. Mm -hmm. There might be a punishment associated if, for example, somebody steals from somebody. There's a there's Jewish laws. There's a there's a, there's a consequence. You have to return and give the double the value or triple the value. Mm -hmm. But forgiveness needs to be experienced and achieved. So, for example, a person who did wrong to a friend, if God forbid they did something to their friend, they cannot just pay them something and then they've been forgiven. And they mm -hmm. can't just go to God and say, God, forgive me for what I did. There, there's, only, there's only tshuva or forgiveness for things, for the most part, you know, generally speaking, unless you go to the person and talk to them mm -hmm. and ask for their forgiveness, then you can go and say, I'm sorry, God. But until you have that human to human conversation, so there yeah. is an element in our in human nature to feel re want rewards and mm -hmm. un, you know maybe it's punitive but you know if you don't if you touched if you touch the fire there's a little bit of a consequence mm -hmm. the human to human conversation is is crucial for the transformation the yeah. transformative part so was was it tell me about the conversation and how that's transformed how it transformed you then and how it transforms you going forward and how you look at the world mm -hmm. Um, yeah, so I should share that leading up to the, the restorative circle, which is that conversation that we sat in, um, my assailant actually went to therapy for about seven months, which was part of the process that was very meaningful and very important to me. And I think that's something important to say about this approach. And this can tie into like consent education as well as just acknowledging that everyone's different. So in your example, if some, if my friend stole from me, what would be really meaningful to me in order for me to forgive them might be different from what you need. So I might be like, you know, I really need like um, them to, to do deep, ed like really educate themselves on like why they might have done that or whatever, this kind of thing. And maybe you really need to see them cry because they're really confronting their own guilt. And then you realize that they do care about you, right? So we all just need different things. And um, the restorative approach is like, let's break out of a one size fits all approach to anything and actually ask people like, hey, what do you need? So for me, that was one of the most powerful things was that in this process, um, people were turning to me in the restorative process and saying, what do you need? And what I would respond with actually mattered. And that in and of itself was a huge point of reclamation because a huge grievance I had around the assault was that it felt like my voice didn't matter at all. It really, really um, like hurt and blew my mind that I could say no, and it didn't hold, it didn't change what was happening, right? So for me to then have a process that's about justice where I'm saying, I want this, I don't want this, and people saying that matters, we're going to listen to you, this is important. It made every step of the process, like it actually helped me in reclaiming and healing. So that was really powerful aspect of it. And then actually sitting down with him, um, it was really scary. I'll never minimize that. It was still really hard. Um, but it was incredibly cathartic to voice things that I've been wanting to voice for three years, to ask things I've been wanting to voice for that long. It's like things that I feel like I was holding in my body that I could finally get out. And that was so freeing. 
Um, and then of course, hearing, hearing from him in a, in a way that allowed me to humanize him more, um, to, to gain a little bit of understanding around like why this happened. Um, that also allowed me to let go of some self-blame that I was holding to be like, no, you know, this, this isn't on me, right? This isn't, this isn't my fault. So it helped with that. And then probably the most powerful moment, I mean, was like hearing him actually take accountability and look me in the eyes and say like, I'm sorry, I sexually assaulted you. There's nothing I can do to take it back. But I hope that being here today can help. And for some people, they might be like, those are a bunch of words, like that's nothing. But I really needed that. Like I really deep, deep, deep down needed that. Um, and then right when he said that, I just started bawling. And it was like so much relief in that moment. Um, and I think, I think survivors just get like gaslit and questioned and made to like, judge ourselves self-blame all the time and having someone actually take accountability is like whew, like I can I can let go of a lot of that baggage so that was like very powerful and honestly like after that that was about halfway through the circle after that it became very hopeful it became less about like looking back and addressing what had happened and more about how do we want to move forward? What would be meaningful? What do we want to contribute to the world? And that was like, amazing. Like we actually left the room feeling very like hopeful and lighthearted. And I just don't know anyone who's ever walked out of a courtroom feeling that way. So it was absolutely like, like my mom would say, it was a life-changing experience. And every single one of us left that circle being like, we really need to share about this with the world. It seems like in the circle, forgiveness was discovered because hmm. for, for the, the felt sense of forgiveness that this person did something wrong to you. And it's not that, well, maybe, yeah. How do you understand forgiveness because of this? Yeah. Um, I guess one way that I define forgiveness, because I think it, it is something that comes up so often when I share this, um, there's a few like points I'll say about it. So, so one is that what feels very important to me is like, and often this is an interpretation is like, forgiveness does not equal justification. So I think a lot of the times when I share this story and I say like, oh, you know, I actually was able to feel compassion for the person who did this to me, people are like, the heck are you talking about? Like, he did something horrible. And I'm like, no, I know, but it, we can hold both. Like, forgiveness is not justification. Another thing I often say is like, forgiveness can coexist with any emotion. So it doesn't mean I'm necessarily sitting in the circle totally at peace with a smile on my face. Let's get face. coffee tomorrow. And yeah, it doesn't necessarily mean that. And then also can coexist with boundaries. So like you said, I'm like, we don't have to be besties now. We don't need to like <laughs> hang out. Um, but for me on a really simple level, it's like just being able to access compassion for this person. And to me, like that part of that is um, putting their life in, in context and being like, this isn't like, like the same way that we're like, you're not, um, you can't be defined by the bad things that have happened to you. I also don't think you can be 
totally defined by the bad things that you've done. And so to me, forgiveness is just like a really deep humanizing, like the same, and to like the same way that I was hurt by being dehumanized. I was like, well, I don't want to just continue that cycle and dehumanize this person and be like, mm, you didn't, mm, you suck too. Like, right. Like, I'm, I think that actual healing happens by kind of interrupting that cycle of dehumanization and actually seeing the person as a whole human being, acknowledging they also have a story and a family and a lineage and things they've gone through and things they've learned and people who love them and people that they love. So it is to me, humanizing the person, being able to feel compassion for them alongside whatever else you might be feeling. And this whole experience that you had and have had and, and as it, as it marked on your life back then, and maybe now seems to go against what we are doing in the culture. It seems that what, what you just, what you started your conversation with is, is very different. How many people do that? How many people have conversations? People just tweet something about how this person Mm -hmm. is this, this person's terrible. I hate this person or making fun or denigrating people. And has that impacted the way you look at social media or how you engage with with this kind of stuff absolutely and I think it's also I'll I'll elaborate on this but I think it's also helped me reconnect with and really come to appreciate um, a lot of Jewish values that really holds nuanced conversation as like a a precious thing Um, I yeah I think it's just I think it's changed my world in so many ways. And something I'll talk about is like restorative justice being integrated, like I said, to every, every level, whether it's like in your romantic relationships and your friendships and your family dynamics. Like we do so often hear this extreme narrative of um, screw that person. Like I didn't deserve that behavior. Like you're out of my life. And it's just very fast. To me, it has a lot of like fight flight energy to it. It's like this urgent, fast thing. We're not really like taking a breath. We're not really like thinking about it. And I also think sometimes it's just cyberbullying. Mm. <laughs> like I also think sometimes- Yeah, imagine you like, saw in person what that, the things that are happening. It can be awful. And, and the wild thing about it to me, so something I really, really, really- value and this is kind of what I was saying about the restorative justice process offering reclamation every step of the way is actually embodying what we're fighting for so if I'm fighting for consent culture and like the end of dehumanization I'm not going to violate someone's boundaries and dehumanize them in the name of reaching that goal that doesn't make sense to me like if we're making a soup and you don't want the soup to have like milk in it, why would you pour a bunch of milk in it? Like, it just doesn't make sense to me. So (laughs) I'm like, I feel we have to actually embody what we're fighting for. And I'll never forget, like, in terms of, I mean, like punitive punishing, right? I'll never forget being in a social work class and talking about mental health policy and seeing two people so passionate about about mental health policy that they were fighting about it to the point where one of them had a panic attack and I was like how can we care so much about mental health on a legislation level 
but not at all for the people who are literally sitting right beside us. So to me, there's this kind of dissonance where we're like, we're not realizing that if, if that we play a role in creating our culture and in our world. So I have found so much beauty in the restorative justice communities and in the, and related to that in the transformative justice communities. And I see this in Jewish communities as well is there's, um, yeah, value on nuanced conversation. And instead of being so quick to judge and also decide what we want to do with a person, because it's, that's often where our heads go. It's like someone wrongs me. Do I want to cut them out of my life forever? Do I want to talk to them tonight? Do I want to like, like, we're so quick to go into decision-making mode and restorative justice will be like, okay, like, let's take a breath. Let's gather some more information. Let's like notice what's happening in your own body. Like was, is someone, is someone hurt right now? What does that person need? Right? Like there's just kind of this spaciousness and all those questions that we ask often with no intention to answer up like, why would the person do that? Like, what's wrong with that? Like restorative justice is like, well, let's actually get curious about that. Like, why would they do that? Right. Did they grow up on a sports team where they were encouraged to see women as objects and to like see them as conquest for their whole life? And also who else played a role in that? Like, is that one person the only one at fault or are their actions like also a result of some other stuff that we should probably change and address as well. So there's just a really deep, patient commitment to long-term healing rather than instant reaction that often like escalates violence instead of de-escalating it. It's a big, it's a big, it's not really about the criminal justice system. It's about, it is about the criminal justice system. And it's mm -hmm. hopefully something that will be available more and more to people, but it is, it, it, it's a lifestyle and it's a way of seeing the world and seeing people. Yeah. It's again, the, the key is it rooted, as you mentioned, not that it justifies, it's not about justification, mm -hmm. um, but forgiveness keeps coming back for me because you did you did hear, I'm sorry. And that was mm -hmm. helpful. Yeah. But what was, was the most helpful part was being internally validated. And like, is it something that you let go within yourself that forgiveness gets created? Like how, how, how do you walk around today and how, like what impact has that had? I'm trying to understand what happened that was so um, or in general with forgiveness that, that leaves a long-term impact, even if you, you know, don't want to see that person anymore, or you have no interest in a relationship? Um, is it just mm. that you've let them go from your heart in a certain way? Like, mm. I mean, my, my initial thought is like, I don't necessarily know the answer to that. I think it's a large combination of things. I definitely think that closure plays a really big role in that. In this experience of being like, I did get what I needed. Um, hmm. I, yeah. Okay. So for me, like the practice of humanizing someone instantly invites forgiveness in a way because it's really easy to hate 
like a concept or a hypothetical thing or something that's not totally real to you. But when you see someone and you look at them and you're like, that person was a baby once. And there's this, there's this awareness of connection just in terms of shared human experience. Like they've cried, they've laughed, they've grieved, they've loved, like they have, like I said, they have a family lineage, like bringing in that context makes it really hard to just like dismiss someone and try to throw them away and just be like, this person's worth nothing. I just think, I just think it's really difficult to do that once you humanize someone. And then, like I said, I also think it's a choice that relates to like, what kind of world do I want to live in? Because I don't want to live in a world where people are able to do what I just said, where they're like, oh, this person's like, means nothing to me. They're a piece of garbage. I don't care about it. I don't care about them at all. Like, I don't want to live in a world where we're treating each other like that because I don't want to be treated like that. Like, that's part of it as well. I'm like, I don't want to, right? So that experience of being dehumanized hurt me so much. So it's like choosing forgiveness and choosing to really humanize this person is, is in a way it's heal, it's choosing my own healing and it's choosing like me reclaiming faith in humanity and some really big things that are so important for me. Um, and I think a major part of this, and I, I know my mom speaks about this as well, is like for a long time, both of us kind of carried that level of faith and transformation. And it was often called naive, delusional, part of my experience with self-blame was me being like, oh, I'm so stupid to have trusted this person. Like if I just, if I could have just assumed that he was like a piece of crap, none of this would have happened. Like I need to be more guard, all this stuff. So having this moment where we were like, wow, you know, we weren't wrong. Like this person did have a transformative experience. This person is better than they were like a year ago. It, it really allowed me to, to validate like my entire worldview and to forgive myself. I think that those things are like undeniably connected, forgiving myself and forgiving that person. I think we can't, we can't separate or have one without the other. So humanization of people and forgiveness is very important. It's, it's seeing the person you, you are not happy happy it's unacceptable what happened but in terms of what maybe a lot of people do and not to blame anybody for doing that is that in order to cope the person has to become a bigger monster and a bigger monster and a bigger monster mm -hmm. and maybe it's just easier to dismiss people and people that we don't from like more extreme situations that you're talking about Mm -hmm. to just the way we relate to other people that we don't see eye to eye on is just to dehumanize them, dehumanize them as we throw them out. And it's mm -hmm. going to, it's going to be okay. Life is, it's more easy. It's more simple. But, but when you forgave, it's mm -hmm. just that you restored your own sense of humanity that you deserved to be able to say, no, your boundaries, your needs were met. And at the same time, you understood somebody in front of you that you didn't, you didn't let it all go and, and everything's okay. And hunky dory and kumbaya. But, but you let go of it because you saw their humanity and that, that has allowed, and, and I think that's like that, you know, even when your people are children, you talk about, you know, the, the 
kids fighting in the playground. Like, I wonder if just the natural way that people work things out is almost like, I don't know if it's like that or, or whatnot, but people talking to each other, Hey, you did that. I didn't like that. Then they explain Mm -hmm. themselves and you say, I still don't like that. You did that. Stop that. Do it's like, you know, why'd you do that to me? And then you, Mm -hmm. you kind of work things out a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely think that I definitely think that that's like both natural to us, but also taught. But then I also get curious about like, is the whole punitive get back at them thing natural or also taught or both, you know, bigger, bigger questions about it. (laughs) And for me, you know, working in, in, in the mental health world, people, you, you know, reinforcement, positive, negative reward, punishment, if you will, there's a way that those can be very human integrated in a human way. Some people want that, you know, if I, mm-hmm. it helps them, it motivates them uh, to do th- something. If I don't do this thing, then I'm going to, you know, send someone $10 as an example, but yeah, they choose it. And yeah. you do try to understand why they are the way they are, what's happening on a deeper level, humanizing the person, humanizing the situation. It's not just punitive or just, you know, talking it through. There's an integration of all sorts mm-hmm. of parts. Um, I'm not sure, but I wanted to just, as we're finishing up here, read, read a quote um, by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs of Blessed Memory, um, a great thinker of our time, who talks about the difference between guilt culture and shame cultures. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's what we've been talking about a little bit here. So I don't know if I'll, if I'll keep the whole quote, but I'm going to read it and, and then I'll let you kind of respond. Guilt cultures conceive of morality as a voice within, the voice of conscience that tells us whether or not we have done wrong. Shame cultures think of morality as an external demand, what other people expect of us. To feel shame is to experience or imagine what one looks like in the sight of others who pass judgment on us. Shame cultures are other-directed. Guilt cultures are inner-directed. Guilt cultures make a sharp distinction between the sinner and the sin. The Mm -hmm. act may be wrong, but the agent's integrity as a person remains intact. That is why guilt can be relieved by remorse, confession, restitution, and the resolve never to behave that way again. In guilt cultures, there is repentance and forgiveness. Shame is not like that. It is a stain on the sinner that cannot be fully removed. A shame culture does not provide forgiveness. It offers something similar but different, namely appeasement, usually accompanied by an act of self-abasement. In a guilt culture, it makes sense to confess your sins. In a shame culture, it makes no sense at all. Instead, it becomes all important to cover up your wrongdoing by any means possible. So it sounds like guilt, repentance, forgiveness, conversation, expressing of your feelings, not seeing people just as stained or who they are forever was a big part of that process that comes to mind for me when you're speaking about this. Yeah, that whole quote, that whole passage was was incredibly I'm like, that's exactly it. That's, that's so resonant. I think that, I think that that perfectly outlines like punitive versus restorative. And also what we're seeing like cancel culture online on social media is, is shame culture. And I I just think it's, to put it very simply, I think it's mean. (laughs) I think it's really mean. I think we're really flexing our, our mean muscles. And then I also just think it's incredibly ineffective just like nothing's actually changing and if anything we've seen there are so many studies 
that show that like shame and isolation are two of the biggest drivers of violence. So someone who's committing violence is someone who's experienced a lot of shame and a lot of isolation. So again, why are we using those tactics in order to, to respond to that? It just, it doesn't make sense to me. Whereas what I so deeply believe in is like everything that, um, and that quote that was just named around, around guilt and how it can actually be quite functional in making sure that we, we are um, like continuing to connect with our humanity and not causing more harm and actually experiencing transformation. Um, it's, it's exactly that. And I just think like the restorative process is coming up with a strategic, skillful way to walk someone through that process of confronting guilt rather than being like, screw you, you suck, do it on your own. It's like, well, that's not really setting the person up for any kind of success, right? So yeah, that was so, so potent. And as we wrap up, I just appreciate you sharing a little bit about the story. We didn't get to everything that we wanted to, but I think the core element is that in our own lives, first of all, we're talking about all these little things here, but Marley, you, you've you've overcome something. I don't I don't I don't know I don't I don't know what the right words are for that, but you've pushed through and overcome and healed and transformed from something so terrible, and you did it through conversation, through personal work, through being open about it, through having your needs met, through this allowing of someone else to speak and explain themselves through conversation, real conversation, transformative conversation. And I appreciate you sharing with us a little bit about forgiveness and restorative justice and what it means to you today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me and thank you everyone for listening. If, if people have any questions, because people always have so many questions, mm -hmm. um, they're more than willing to, to connect with me. Um, on Instagram is usually best. So it's just Marvelous, M-A-R-L-E-E-L-I-S-S. -E -E and of course, a disclaimer. This podcast and all of our mental health learning and educational content is not therapy and is not a replacement for therapy. Please seek professional help if needed. Go to www.resolve2v's.ca to get the support you need. And that's all for now. We hope this was helpful in some small way. If you like our content, please subscribe and give us a five-star review wherever you are listening. Make sure to keep updated with all of our content on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. And of course, come check us out at www.resolve, that's resolve with two Vs, .ca, to learn more about how our services can support your needs. Till Til next, next time, time take, take care. care. Theme song for this podcast is done by the band Mokuse no Maguro in their song Midnight Empty Street. <laughs>